parables to teach about the kingdom of God, about the kingdom of heaven. He uses them to teach about God's economy of salvation. He does that so that we might understand it better. Because the kingdom of heaven and God's economy of salvation, more pointedly, it often does not work like we think it would work. And at times it doesn't even work like we think it should work. People in the audience, the people to whom Christ was telling the parables, they were to see themselves in them. And we've thought about this each week. We should as well see ourselves in the parables of Christ. In particular, we need to approach the parables as a kind of mirror for us. They show us what and who we really are before God. They expose our hearts before the Lord as well. The parables of Christ crush self-righteousness. Hence, in the series title, Mirrors, Hammers, and More Than Morality, that hammer piece is how these things, these parables, time after time after time, crush any notion of our own righteousness in terms of our standing before God. They blow up ignorant notions, deluded, arrogant, fallen notions of what we deserve and of how we might be declared righteous in God's sight. So today, we're going to consider the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This one is perhaps familiar to many. It can be found in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. So I invite you now to open your Bibles. You will be helped, as always, to be able to follow along with me as we look at the page, as we look to God's book. As you're making your way to Luke 18 and verse 9, I want to make a few brief comments about the audience to whom Jesus tells this parable, and then therefore what we can necessarily infer about why he told the parable. We're going to get this again when we look to the passage, but just consider this a double dip. It's really important that we would understand the audience and the goal of the parable if we're going to get what we should out of it today. In verse 9, reads this way, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. Now, it's always nice when the writers of Scripture, inspired of the Holy Spirit, give us this. Like, there is no guessing, there's no even real hard work that we've got to do to determine, all right, now who's he speaking to, and why did he tell this? It's obvious. It's on the billboard, man. You can't miss it. From the audience, from the occasion, right, he told this parable to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. We can easily infer the purpose for which Jesus told it. He's going to blow up self-righteousness, right? He's going to blow up, expose the absolute foolishness of trusting in oneself that one is righteous. He's going to expose that as well as one of the fruits of self-righteousness, treating other people with contempt. So keep all that in your mind, even as I read the parable for us, okay? 
So listen now to the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is the word of God. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. So my plan is pretty simple, somewhat similar to last week's outline in one sense. I want to walk through the parable. I want to look at it. I want to observe it. I want to explain some things. First part. Second part, I want to offer some further explanation, meditation, and application for us. We've got three points of that. And then we have a conclusion. So the parable, some reflection, further explanation, application, and a conclusion. So let's look to the parable together. Put your eyes again back on verse 9. This can't be said enough. Luke tells us that Jesus told the parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So trusting in oneself that one is righteous is in the crosshairs. Jesus is going to expose it. He's going to explode it. And in addition to that, we understand this. You don't need me to explain this, I don't think, because you're thoughtful people. There are things that flow out of self-righteousness that are really bad. Self-righteousness is damning. And out of self-righteousness come many terrible things, including treating other people with contempt, as this text says. Now, contempt means what? It's not a word we use all the time. Contempt means it's a, it's a feeling that a person deserves scorn or even that they are not valuable they are worthless that's what it is to treat others with contempt a person who deserves scorn a person who is worthless so that that posture that flows from self-righteousness is also in the crosshairs verse 10 this is the parable proper Jesus begins to speak here. We learn of the two men in the parable. The two of them, they go into the temple to pray. Again, remember, in this era of redemptive history, the presence of God uniquely dwells in the temple. So this would have been a place where people would have gone in a particular way to offer prayers. One man is a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Pharisees, what can we say about them? Just for our general awareness. The Pharisees were a part of the religious leadership of the day. They were a subset of that. Theirs was a movement of pious living 
of learning and of faithfulness to the Mosaic law, particularly over and against Greek pagan influence that was beginning to take root. By the time of Christ, the Pharisees had developed a, a body of ethical teaching referred to as the tradition of the elders. You'll hear that referenced a number of places in the gospel accounts, the tradition of the elders. This body of teaching was developed by the Pharisees in order to apply the law to various specific situations. Many in the room also know that as a piece of this, you would have had a number of very codified outlines of what it looked like to be a godly, righteous person. The proverbial hedge around the law, right, that the Pharisees had created to avoid breaking the law. Pharisees were devout and strict. They emphasized conformity to the law via the tradition they upheld. And it is important to note that Pharisees were very respected by their fellow Jews for their devoutness. Okay, so that's Pharisees. That's this man. What about the tax collector? What could we say about tax collectors that would be helpful for us today? Well, they were despised by their fellow Jews in the first century because of their collaboration with Rome's occupying forces. There's a reason that the phrase tax collectors and sinners is a thing, even in the vernacular of Jesus. These people were representative of a really bad group. Really bad sinners would be called this. You see, they collected, excuse me, the tax collectors did, collected taxes from Jewish people on behalf of Rome. This is bad. They were traitors to their own people in that regard. They would often collect more than was owed in order to pad their own pockets, to line their own pockets. So there was a pattern of extorting from their own Jewish people in order to make themselves rich through that dishonesty. They were excluded often from the religious life of the synagogue and the temple. So this is a striking picture that Jesus paints. We lose sight of the striking nature of it at points because we're not familiar with Pharisees. We're not familiar with tax collectors. It's not the capital we trade with all the time. But here we have a devout, respected religious leader. And here we have a despised and detestable sinner who is in cahoots with Rome. Those are your two people in the parable. You can see the tension already. You know how the parable ends. This is incredibly offensive, right? Verses 11 and 12. Let's consider the Pharisee in more detail. In particular, what he prays. He stands by himself. And standing was a normal posture in prayer in this day. So we will not read anything into that. He prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I don't want you to miss something here. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Notice that he is thanking God, at least in some measure, for the way that he is. And, on the flip side, what he is not. 
He does not understand himself, at least in an absolute sense, to be a self-made man. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. His righteousness, his devoutness, at least in part, is a result of God's providential and restraining grace from his perspective. God is God. He is not a man who doesn't need any grace who doesn't need any work of God, he understands that at least in measure, who he is, is a result of what God has done and how God has made him. And he is thanking God for that. Now, if you've not considered this parable in this way before, I hope this makes you uncomfortable. I do. If we're going to see the pointedness of this thing, we should feel some discomfort about that. Because you're like, well, brother, is that bad to do? To thank God that I am the way that I am. And to thank God that I'm not this way. Let's move on. He's going to elaborate. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. Or I'm not even like this tax collector who must have been within his you know, peripheral view And then he goes on in verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. So the Pharisee here is praying to God about his own devout practices in a sense and kind of cataloging them before the Lord. It's important that we realize too that what he is saying in fasting twice a week and giving tithes of all that he gets there was only one mandated fast in the Mosaic Law. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the Jews were told they must fast. Now you could fast more than that, but it was up to an individual's discretion. So there's one required fast each year. And then when it comes to tithing, the law required that crops be tithed. The law required that firstlings of the flock be tithed. But the law does not speak directly to people who would buy those crops and buy those animals. So in other words, the Pharisee is devout to the extent that what he regularly does exceeds the demands of the law from his perspective. He's required to fast once a year. He fasts twice a week. If the crops and the animals were his straight up, he would be required of the law to tithe them. But he tithes everything, not just things that he should. And he states this to God in prayer. He is a serious man. Let's consider the tax collector from verse 13. The tax collector, in comparison to the Pharisee, stands far off, we're told. Now, it's possible, right, that he understands himself to be unworthy, to come closer to where the presence of God dwelt in the temple. That's possible. But we're not even told where the Pharisee was standing. It's also possible that the tax collector felt himself unworthy to stand near the Pharisee, who was a respected religious leader. Either way, the point is made, right? He is hesitant, the tax collector is, to draw near because of his own sense of his own unworthiness. We're told that he will not even lift his eyes to heaven. Again, he sees himself as an unworthy, sinful man. He then beats his breast, which we should just simply understand as a gesture of self-deprecation in a sense of he is 
lamenting and grieving who and what he is, right? And then he prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, a couple of linguistic notes. We don't do this all the time, but sometimes it's helpful to talk about some language here that doesn't always come across super well in the English. In the original, there is a definite article in front of the word sinner. And in one sense, we could render that, not formally, but figuratively, we could render that, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Kind of has that, of whom I am the foremost, kind of ring to it, right? 1 Timothy 1.15. Also, the verb rendered in our Bibles, have mercy on me, that verb to have mercy, is a word that connotes atonement and satisfaction being made for sin. It is not the normal word for mercy that shows up all over the New Testament. The only other place this word shows up is in Hebrews 2 in verse 17 that reads this way. Speaking of Jesus, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that's the verb, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And you might be like, propitia what? Propitiation is to make satisfaction for sin. To satisfy the justice and the wrath of God against sin because God is righteous and good. So that's the only other place that this particular verb ever shows up. The word has ties to the day of atonement as well as the sacrificial system because of that language of propitiation. And it has ties to the work of the Messiah who would come and definitively accomplish atonement, who would definitively accomplish making satisfaction for sins. So here we have a man and this tax collector who knows he's unworthy of God's favor, who knows he's fallen short of God's standard. He is contrite over this and prays that the Lord would have mercy on him, that the Lord would mercifully make atonement and satisfaction for his sin. Then in verse 14, Jesus is going to make the pronouncement. Having told the parable, having described the men, having described their posture and their prayers, he is going to give the verdict. I tell you, and when Jesus speaks like that, I tell you, he's authoritatively saying this, right? I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. To be justified, remember, is to be declared just in the sight of God. To stand before God and be declared righteous is what it means to be justified. And it is the tax collector, the detestable sinner, who goes down from the temple to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. Again, the offense of this can't be overstated. And then Jesus offers a heart-level closing statement. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's briefly make this connection. 
in the parable, the Pharisee's posture is one of exalting himself. Using the language of Christ at the end of verse 14, the Pharisee's posture is one of exalting himself. The posture of the tax collector, however, is one of humbling himself. So when you observe this tax collector and you hear him say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, in the words of Christ, that is to humble oneself. And when you hear the Pharisee, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, we should hear exalting oneself. That's clear to you, I trust. Keep that in mind. So now I want to further explain, meditate, and apply here. Three points. The first point is actually a question. Don't let that wig you out. Point one, which is a question, is this. How should we understand the justification of the tax collector? It's a million dollar question. How should we understand the justification of the tax collector? Well, beloved, the tax collector is trusting in the one who justifies the ungodly. And righteousness is counted to him through faith. He's trusting in the one who justifies the ungodly. And righteousness is counted to him through faith. To which you should hear that, and you're thinking, yeah, brother, that's, that's the good news. That's what that is. Exactly right. That God, on account of nothing in us or done by us, counts to us the very righteousness of Christ through faith. It is the passive obedience of Christ in his suffering, his whole life in an appointed way on the cross, to fulfill the penalty of the law that's counted to us. That's a piece of it. We read from Galatians earlier, in Christ I died to the law. What does that mean? It means that his death is our death. The penalty we deserve, he took. And so we no longer face that under the law. That's a piece of what he accomplished for us. But then it's also his active obedience, which means the way that he lived, perfectly fulfilling the law his entire life. God's word is very clear that it is only doers of the law who will ever be justified in the sight of God. Everyone in this room knows, brother, I have not done that perfectly. I have fallen on my face so many times I can't even count them exactly. Jesus kept the law and his life is counted as our life. And that righteousness of Christ in his suffering and in his obedience in his death, in his fulfillment of the law. That very righteousness of Christ, it's his and it's counted to us as ours, as our whole and only righteousness before God. And we receive it by faith. Like this tax collector, our righteousness is not our own. This is important. Our righteousness is not our own. To use the language of the reformers, our righteousness is alien to us. The righteousness that we have in order to stand before God and have peace before him is Christ's very righteousness. I want to make that plain. 
We will not understand this parable rightly if we don't understand that reality. And that righteousness that is Christ's, that's counted as ours, is given by grace, received by faith. And it is precisely this righteousness of Christ that is the ground of our standing before God today, and it's the ground of our standing before God at the judgment seat. We're going to think about that more in a minute. Like this tax collector, any person who trusts Christ, who receives him by faith, has his sins forgiven and his guilt absolved. And like this tax collector, any person who receives the righteousness of Christ by faith is clothed in that very righteousness. You remember those wedding garments we talked about a couple of weeks ago? We are given the garments of Christ to wear. And we appear before God in those garments, not as a sinner, but as a righteous person. Was the tax collector righteous under the law? No. Are you? No. Am I? No. This is why Christ alone is our hope and confidence. He surpasses all perfection of the law. He is the end of the law for righteousness. And he is held out as our righteousness. So, beloved, look to him and trust him. May God give us that faith and that grace. Second point. This is a very significant connection that I want to try to make for us. And I, I hope you're able to track with me. So, it's just a significant connection. If you're a note taker and you need a heading, it's very generic. And there it is. Verse 9, Jesus told the parable to quote those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, close quote. It becomes very clear very quickly that the Pharisee is representative of those who trust in themselves that they are righteous, right? You guys are tracking with me. Yet remember, if the Pharisee is representative of people who trust in themselves that they're righteous, remember what we have considered and observed about this man already. We have seen that the Pharisee knows, at least in measure, that God has had a hand in him being the way he is. I'm going to say that again. The Pharisee is acknowledging, at least in some way, that God has had a hand in him being the way he is, at least by the way of restraining grace. So this is significant. For the Pharisee, his is not completely a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps righteousness. Not completely. His is not, in other words, a theology of just crass legalism. There's grace in his economy of how he stands before God and his understanding. There's grace there. And he is thanking God that he has not gone the way of other men. So here's the big provocative thing. I will probably say this twice so that you can hear it twice. Think about this. A trust in the righteousness we have that we understand God to have a hand in is still to trust in ourselves that we are righteous. A trust in a righteousness we have 
that we understand God to have a hand in is still to trust in ourselves that we are righteous. In the, in the language and the economy of this parable, that is true. You can't help but be struck by the fact that a vast number of professing Christians around the globe imagine that righteousness before God Righteousness before God. I'm not talking about horizontal righteousness. Righteousness before God is a combination of faith in Christ and their good works. Vast numbers of professing Christians understand that to be true. So there's the observation, the connection to make. And we're going to unpack this even more now in point three. So this is a significant takeaway for us. A significant takeaway. Even in the new covenant. And I frame it that way because we rejoice in the new covenant reality that we have the spirit of God indwelling us. The spirit of God has united us to Christ and it is Christ's very spirit that works in us to produce obedience and good works. Amen? We delight in that. But a significant takeaway for us when it comes to our peace, when it comes to any rest we would ever know, when it comes to sustainability in the Christian life, what we're about to talk about really matters. Do not trust Christ and your good works. Hear me. Do not trust Christ and your obedience. Do not trust Christ and the intensity of your personal experience. Do not trust Christ and how you feel about him or the things of God. Do not trust in the righteousness of your life, even if it is God-wrought. Trust Christ alone. Do you understand the distinction? Envision the judgment seat. And I'm just going to go to, I, what I'm about to do is not scare tactics, okay? I don't know how many in the room, like me, grew up in a context that was less than ideal. You go to the judgment house every Halloween and they're literally going to try to scare you away from being a crazy whatever teenager and in using fear, we're going to drive people to Christ. This is not what I'm doing. But envision the judgment seat. I mean this to be a reinforcement of what we're talking about, and I actually mean this to be a great encouragement to you and me. The judgment seat. The one who sits there is the one before whom the mountains melt, says the scripture. The one who sits there is the one before whom the valleys literally split open. The one who sits there is the one before whom the whole earth heaves. The one who sits there is the one whose righteousness not even the angels can bear. The one who sits there is the one from whom angels hide their faces. The one who sits there is the one who is so pure that to him, behold, even the moon is not bright 
and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. Envision him. I mean, if you can, envision that. Envision him sitting in judgment to examine the deeds of men and women. Who will stand confident before his throne? Who? I'll tell you who. He who walks uprightly and never sins. He who is righteous and blameless in all his ways. He who meditates upon the law of God day and night and always lives in perfect accord with it. Let such a one come forward and stand. And that invitation causes no one to come. No one. Because such a person does not exist amongst the sons and the daughters of Adam. The haunting words ring out, right? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So, that's the scene. Tell me, in that moment, are you going to look to yourself, to your works in any way? Will I? Beloved, the good works of the regenerate can never obtain justification. The good works, even of the regenerate, those who are born again, can never obtain justification. So don't trust in them in any way. Don't trust in them. As John Calvin wrote, we profit nothing in discussing righteousness unless we establish a righteousness so steadfast that it can support our soul in the judgment of God. Amen. It goes without saying that that righteousness that could support our soul in the judgment of God must be Christ's and not ours. This is why when it comes to the law in the life of the believer, here is Calvin again. The law does not stop teaching and exhorting and urging them to good. Even though before God's judgment seat, it, the law, has no place in their consciences. Where consciences are worried how to render God favorable, what they will reply, and with what assurance they will stand should they be called to his judgment. There we are not to reckon what the law requires, but Christ alone, who surpasses all perfection of the law, must be set forth as righteousness. Amen. Bringing it back to the parable. Even if we understand that our transformation of life, and I'm looking over a group of people, I know many of you relatively well, I know some of you very well. There is transformation in your lives, beloved. There's been transformation in mine, amen? To God be the glory for that. But even if we understand that our transformation of life is wrought by God, even if we understand that the fruit in our life is produced by the Holy Spirit, to trust in those things as even a piece of what will give us a standing before God in the judgment. 
is to build our hope in some measure on our own righteousness. We can't go there. We are looking outside of ourselves, away from ourselves, always to Christ. One might rightly ask, hearing this, you might rightly ask, I'm glad if you're thinking this. Well, brother, I can be encouraged by the work of the Spirit in my life, right? I can be encouraged by the fruit of, my, of the Spirit in my life, right? I can be encouraged by the good works that I've done in faith, right? Amen, you can. Yes, be encouraged as you observe these things. We should be encouraged by all of that. We should point that out to each other more than we do to encourage us in the walk. Our good works done in the Spirit, wrought by the Spirit, are fruit and evidence of justification received. They are fruit and evidence of life given by God. And by them, we, in addition to encouraging our assurance and bolstering it, we express our gratitude to God through good works. We build up our brothers and sisters through good works. We adorn our profession of faith in Christ. And we honor God. In all of this, we strive to think well. We want to think well about our righteousness before God and then the pursuit of righteousness in union with Christ. We understand that the object of our faith, Jesus, is the one who has saved us, it's accomplished, and he is the one who produces good works in us. Our ability to do good works does not arise in any way whatsoever from us. It is always from the Spirit of Christ in us. Further, when it comes to these works, we realize that the best of our works falls far short of what God requires. And therefore, this is another thing to put in your mind, because our works are always tainted with sin, they are honored by God because they're done in faith in the Lord Jesus, but they are not perfect works. They could never, on their own, stand in the judgment. This is why Jesus will say, Luke 17, 10, See you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. How foolish then would it ever be, like the Pharisee in our parable, to think that we have gone beyond what God's law requires. How absurd. Yet how many in the church, I don't mean that here, I mean this broadly, how many in the church think that they are going above and beyond for God? I say not here, but to our shame, many of us act like this. We think this way. Man, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I am crushing it for God this week. I mean, it's how we think. Going above and beyond for God. And then, what happens when we get in those frames of mind, it's as natural as breathing then to look down on other people. It's as natural as breathing to treat others with contempt. You see, if you trust, even in part, in your own righteousness, I don't care if you think God gave it to you or not. If you trust in your own righteousness, that is a breeding ground 
for treating others with contempt. You will look down on other people. You will be perpetually frustrated with other people in the church. You will often be thinking in inappropriate ways. Man, I'm glad I'm not like them. You will often be thinking in inappropriate ways, if only they were more like me, we could really get something done around here. If only everybody was dedicated to the cause of Christ as me. Beloved, we don't want to go there either. We don't. We talked about it at some length last week and I'm not going to reiterate. Debtors to grace who know that they're debtors to grace love and serve other debtors to grace. People who know that Christ is their only hope are moved to love and serve other people who know Christ is their only hope. May that guide us in the church. I want to read for you some words from the Apostle Paul, just to reiterate what we've been talking about. You can mark it down. If you really want to turn, you can, but if you want, just read it later. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I just want to read some of these words and talk to you for a moment, and then we're going to conclude. Paul writes, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I love this verse in part because of what the apostle says right there. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. I, in every good way, I know I feel like this as a pastor. To get up here every week and extol, attempt to extol the grace of Jesus Christ is of no trouble for me and it's safe for our church. Right? As Luther said, Martin Luther said, right? Why do I preach the gospel in every assembly? Because we forget it every day, we forget it every week. So that's how Paul leads off. So no trouble to write the same things. Well, what's he going to write about? He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about people who advocate circumcision as a part of righteousness. For we are the circumcision, he says, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself... So he's, he is unpacking... The thing that he wants to write again that's not of trouble for him and is safe for them, he's going to talk about how we should put zero confidence in the flesh and in our righteousness in terms of what we do. Because the surpassing value of the righteousness of Christ given to us by faith is what the Christian life is. So here he goes. We put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And the providence of God is so wonderful that this man is an apostle because of his passion and zeal as a Pharisee. Circumcised on the eighth day, check. Of the people of Israel, check. Of the tribe of Benjamin, that's a plus. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. If only everybody could be as dedicated as me. Right? As to righteousness under the law or righteousness in the law, blameless. Paul was a rock star at doing the things, right? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There is so much that could be said about this. One of the striking things about that section is that Paul is renouncing his virtue, not his vice. Part of renouncing everything, if we're going to talk in those terms, part of renouncing everything for the sake of Christ means that. We cling for our lives to our virtue. Renounce it and trust Christ. I want to conclude our time by, by doing this. This is not maybe a normal conclusion and that's fine. Just trying to keep you on your toes. Back to Luke 18 and the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. That's Luke 18 verses 9 to 14. That kicks off a section in Luke's gospel that is pretty epic. Just section after section after section after section just dripping with gospel. We've talked before how a lot of the words of Christ in the gospels are law. But then there are things that he says that are gospel. And even when he preaches law, he is trying to explain and show people their need of him. Consider what comes after our parable. The Pharisee and the tax collector. What flows out of it in Luke's account? Well, the very next passage is, let the little children come to me. We thought about this last week. In God's providence, it was right around our Matthew parable as well. Where people are bringing little children to Jesus and the disciples rebuke them because they're like, hey, he don't have time for this. He's busy. He's doing ministry. He's doing a lot of things. And so don't, don't do that. And then Jesus rebukes the disciples and he calls to the people and says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Receiving, not achieving. Simply trusting like a child. Not self-sufficient, but dependent. Looking to a kind benefactor to provide what's needed. To such belong the kingdom of heaven. Then we have the rich ruler, which is Luke's account of the rich young man, which we also talked about in brief last week from Matthew's gospel, where we considered how you have a man who comes to Christ asking him, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus first makes it plain that there's no son of Adam, no daughter of Adam who's good. And then he tells him to keep the law. And the young man says, well, I've done that. And then Christ effectively asks him to prove that. Prove that you've loved God and neighbor perfectly by selling everything you have, giving it to the poor and following me. The man can't do it. The disciples have a wig out moment, right? Because they, in their national covenant with Israel context, their old covenant context, they understand that people are wealthy because they've been obedient to the law. This is what God had told his people. So they ask Jesus, if he can't be saved, who can to which Jesus says, well, with man it's impossible, with God it's possible. So there's that. Then after that, we have Jesus talking about his death a third time. A third time in Luke's gospel, he's going to tell his disciples, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. He goes into more depth about his humiliation. Straightforward enough. The disciples do not understand it at that present time. Then we have Jesus healing a blind beggar. There's a blind beggar who hears that Jesus is passing by and upon hearing that, keeps crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There's a lot there. Jesus, son of David, which 
hearkens to the Davidic covenant, the son of David who would reign forever, who would represent the people in righteousness and all of those things, son of David, have mercy on me. To which Jesus stops the procession and he says to the man, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Then finally we have Jesus and Zacchaeus in the early portion of chapter 19. Now what is Zacchaeus? He's a tax collector. He's very rich, we're told. He's also very short, but that's, that only matters for a detail in the story. He's a wealthy tax collector. He, Jesus is going through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. This man named Zacchaeus is there. He's a chief tax collector, actually, and he's loaded. He climbs up in a tree because he's short. He can't see. He wants to see Christ. So he's heard enough about Jesus. He wants to see him. Climbs up in a tree. Jesus gets to the tree, the area where the tree is, where Zacchaeus is up in it, and he calls out to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. It's pretty cool. The people grumble. Even in that context, they grumble that Jesus has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus is overcome by all of this, and he tells Jesus that he is going to be generous to people, and he's going to do right by other people. He vows it. But Jesus makes a pronouncement that salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house because he too is the son of Abraham. And when you hear that, hear Galatians 3.8. Hear Galatians 3.7. But he is of faith. He's the son of Abraham. Then this, to conclude that section, after he's pronounced salvation for Zacchaeus, for the son of man, came to seek and to save the lost. So just consider this. This section of Luke's gospel. Not much more than a chapter. You have this. You have a tax collector crying out, God be merciful to me a sinner. And Jesus saying, I tell you, this man went home justified rather than the other. We see that we're to receive the kingdom of God like a child. Simply receive from the Father. Trust. Jesus making it plain to a man, you have not kept the law that you think you've kept. To which his own followers say, who can be saved then? And he says, well, with men it can't happen, but with God it can. He then tells his disciples pointedly, I'm going to suffer and die in the place of my people. Then we have a blind beggar crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And his response is, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And then the pronouncement. Today salvation has come to this house since he also, a tax collector and a sinner, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now that's gospel if I've ever heard it. I don't know about you. As we often say here, thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. For his death in our place, for his fulfillment of the law. He is the only hope for sinners. He is our surety. He is the guarantee of our final salvation. And we will stand covered in his blood and righteousness. We will stand wearing his very garments as we stand before him on the judgment seat. And so we can have peace. So as you depart today, I'm not sure what you're going to do this afternoon, but whatever you do, enjoy your forgiveness. Love each other. And with that, let's close in prayer.